Students often have poor study skills and learning habits that can lead to academic struggle. In this episode, we will discuss how colleges are using student success specialists to help these students achieve their academic goals. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guests are Allison Pierre and Alicia King, student academic success specialists at the State University of New York at Oswego. Welcome, Allison and Alicia. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Today, our teas are... I have Harney and Sons chocolate mint tea, and it's delicious. I have Mandarin black pure tea. I have Twining's black currant black tea. <laughs> and I have uh, Harney and Sons Paris tea. Many colleges have begun introducing student academic success specialists, and it's a fairly new role. So could you tell us a little bit about what the role of academic success specialists is? We see ourselves primarily as academic success coaches. Um, there are a lot of uh, differences between high school and college, and we're here to help students navigate that transition um, in the areas of time management, for example. So when students are in, in high school, they often have a lot of adults helping them manage their time for them, like uh, teachers, parents, coaches. When they get here, they have a lot more independence and free time, and they have to make those decisions on their own. And sometimes they need support in doing that. Another thing we find is even though students may have been successful in high school, um, the strategies they relied on for success in high school may not be working for them as well in college. So we we sometimes uh, need to coach them on specific uh, strategies um, for effective learning. And then we also have several students who report that they did not have to study in high school. So um, they they get here and um, they, they first try to rely on, you know, this, the same um, methods that they used before, which might have included some cramming, but other, you know, otherwise they might not have had to study very much. Um, and, and so then they find that they're not being as successful. And so we have to coach them on um, specific study and learn, learning strategies as well. How does your role complement or supplement the role of faculty members on campus? Um, we have a few different things we use here. Uh, we offer to present at first choice courses, and we'll do that for any professor who's who would like to invite us. What's a us first to choice uh, course? So it's a course for first year students. Um, it's usually a subject area that of, of a requirement that they need for their degree program, but it's also a class where we will teach them study strategies, teach them about the campus resources they need to know about to be successful during their first year. So only first-year students can get into those courses. It's actually SUNY This Week's version of a, a first-year seminar, and there's currently a group of people um, looking at um, modifying this a little bit. Um, 
John, you're on that team. Would you like to say a little bit about that? So our provost has talked a little bit about that. At his prior institution, they had introduced a first-year program that were designed to improve student engagement and interest in the course, where uh, he referred to them as passion courses, where the instructor would find some topic that they were passionate about. The argument is it could help provide students with a much more engaging experience so they'd have a better tie to the community. And we, um, in the first choice courses, um, we also try to help build that um, tie to the college. One of the um, options we give to instructors um, that we can present for the first choice class is um, nailing your first semester, and it focuses on campus resources to help support student success. There's a couple other options of courses or options of first choice presentations that we offer. One is how to study in college, what to do and what not to do, and also balancing choices, priorities, and deadlines. It focuses more on the priority and time management aspect. Are there other things that you do to support faculty other than just in the first year? Yes. <clears throat> so, for example, we certainly encourage students to visit their faculty's office hours. Um, one of my students was reporting back to me on a conversation that she had with her professor in office hours. He had suggested to her that in addition to the traditional studying that she was doing, for example, reviewing her notes um, from class, he also suggested doing some additional practice problems. And then if she experienced any difficulty with those problems or the ones that she struggled with, she could bring those back to his office and discuss the solutions with him in office hours. And I could tell that um, the student really didn't like the professor's suggestion from my conversations with her. I know that she believes she needs to learn in certain ways. And when someone was suggesting something different, she didn't think it was going to work for her. So I took that opportunity to talk to her about why he was suggesting it. And I, I showed her the book, Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning, and explained to her that he was suggesting that she use one of the research-based strategies from that book. It's a strategy that we know works. It's been proven by research. Um, and so after trying to you know, convince her why she should give the, the strategy a try, uh, we looked at her schedule to see, you know, where could she fit in some opportunities for this type of practice. So I'm looking forward to hearing back from her to see how it went when she did some practice problems, but she hadn't gone back to the professor's office hours yet to discuss those problems. So I'm looking forward to hearing back from her about how that part went. So it sounds like the opportunities for the one-on-one -on -one interactions is really helpful so that students can maybe start seeing the why. Certainly faculty members, I'm sure, often try to indicate why they do things in classes, but maybe they're not always good at communicating that. And so having support outside can be really helpful because there's often reasons why faculty might have certain requirements, but you know, it might not be so clear to students. 
And students come in with some serious metacognitive issues in terms of what they find most effective in studying. As you said, students generally believe that the most effective studying techniques are repeated rereading and cramming before an exam. And while that works really well in remembering things for a few minutes or a few hours, it really doesn't do much in terms of long-term learning. And it's one of the things that, you know, both make it stick and the small teaching reading group we're doing this semester in which you're both participating point out. Um, but it's hard to convince students. How successful are you in general at convincing students? A one-on-one approach, I think, would be much more effective than trying to have a faculty member, well, in my case, for example, try to convince 360 students that they should try these t- techniques. Yes, uh, we definitely enjoy the one-on-one opportunities with students. In some ways, students are already primed for new suggestions when we start working with them. We teach an academic success course in addition to seeing um, students on academic probation in in one-on-one conversations. Students who take our academic success course, most of them are um, choosing to take it because they know that the strategies um, that they have been relying on are not working for them. So they are ready to try something new. So we do have some buy-in already. Um, In the past, um, the people in this position previously experimented with requiring students to take the course, um, and it it didn't work as well when the students felt like they were being made to take it, as as what we understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So. um, Extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation at play. Um, So. Another thing that we we do that um, kind of helps convince the students to try it, um, and this is suggested also in um, Make It Stick, um, take the time to explain to students how learning works. It's about them. It's about how their mind works. And usually people are interested in things that relate to them and also that are going to help them and improve in something that that they want to accomplish. So we have um, found a lot of engaging videos that, you know, help students um, see how learning works. And then also we we have videos that help introduce some strategies uh, for for effective learning, such as space practice, retrieval practice, interleaved practice. One of the um, the video series that we really like is by the College Info Geek, um, Thomas Frank. I don't know if you guys have seen him on YouTube. Um, one of our colleagues in the School of Education, I consider him to be an expert on like brain-based learning strategies. He actually uses Thomas Frank with his students. So if he uses it, then I feel comfortable <laughs> relying on Thomas Frank as a resource also. But the videos that Thomas Frank does, they are geared towards helping students improve in, in all areas academically and and otherwise. Like, for example, he has a video on how to get good sleep and how to take care of your health so that you can then, you know, in turn, be more productive and successfully with your academics. So instead of students just having to to listen to us <laughs> the whole time, we pull in some videos like that. And 
After we introduce the strategies to students, we also ask them to share out examples of how they may already be using it so that, you know, they might hear an idea from a classmate that they might think would work well for them. And so then they're willing to try it out because they heard it from a peer who they can relate to. And Thomas Frank is young as well, so I think that helps quite a bit. Allison's giggling because she knows how much I like Thomas Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, a podcast we recorded just a few days ago and will be coming out probably a week or two before this. We talked about a metacognitive cafe online discussion forum where students look at similar things, but also share their thoughts with each other so that not only are they thinking about how they've applied it, but applying it. Having hearing from peers about how it can be effective can help. And hearing from someone who's young on a video may also work better than hearing from an old professor uh, and so forth. One of the things that I've been really impressed with is all the materials you develop and the handouts that you've given out to students. We'll include links to some of these in the show notes. Could you tell us a little bit about the materials you've created and share with students? Sure. So using retrieval practice, we understand that textbook reading isn't always the student's favored style of studying, even though to prepare for a test, you're correct, John, they they often will reread the text over and over and over again. So yes, reading the text is important, but also making connections to the class lectures are also important. So we created these bookmarks using the retrieval practice strategy that helps them quiz themselves as they're reading so that they're pulling more information out of the text. Their eyes just aren't skimming. They're not flipping pages and not really they're not really digesting the information that they're trying to learn when they do that. Instead, they're treating it kind of like a scavenger hunt. They have questions that they need to look for that they're supposed to get out of that chapter. Put it right on the back of a bookmark so they can quiz themselves with questions like, what did I just learn or read? What is this mostly about? So they can summarize it, put it into their own words, which is another useful tool. Questions like, how does this relate to what I already know, which also helps them build connections. So it's just something handy that they can keep in their textbook to help them. And we do have to coach them in how to use the bookmark. So the retrieval practice is only retrieval practice when you are forcing yourself to stop and and answer the question. Some students need a reminder that, you know, you can't just say, oh, yeah, I think I I know that. That's that makes sense to me. That's easy. I'm I'm just going to move on to the next section. They actually have to to stop and, and make themselves answer a question about it, put in that effort to do that. I was just going to say, I had a student this morning that I had that same conversation yeah. with, right? This idea of fluency illusion. Mm-hmm. You know, she was talking about, yeah, when you go over it in class or we go over it in class, it makes perfect sense. When I go to try to do it myself, like it makes, like I can't figure mm-hmm. it out at all. And that's, you know, that's the idea of needing to practice. And we were talking, I was talking to her about the issue that she had been missing a lot of the review questions that we have at the beginning of class, which is built-in practice. So she was missing that opportunity mm-hmm. to kind of retrieve on her mm-hmm. own. And she was only hearing like the solutions at the end. Mm-hmm. So we discussed that, but it's the same idea. It's like, yeah, sure does make sense to me when someone's explaining it to me and like right. holding my hand through it. Right? Yeah. Right. yeah. When I'm showing them the bookmark in my office, I actually find myself like turning in my chair, turning away from the book and looking out of the book and, you know, like answering the question out of my head and then turning back to the book so they can see, yeah, I actually do need to to look out of the book and rely on my own thoughts to answer the question. Your own mental of, models. Yes, yeah. in, instead of, you know, letting myself look back in the book to answer it. And, and we do tell them, 
after you've answered the question for yourself, yes, then you can check back in the book and see if there's anything that you missed or, it, you know, make sure you explained it accurately. But do take the time to answer it on your own first. It's definitely a, a habit that takes discipline to build. I like telling the students to use Cornell notes while they do it. So they actually, like in the left-hand column of the Cornell notes, they can write a question like the ones on the back of the bookmark and then explain it and then use those notes as part with their lecture notes to study from. So they get the most they can mm -hmm. from the textbook and the lecture. And of course, in our academic success course, we make sure they know when you're using those questions on the left-hand side of the Cornell notes, cover up the details on the right and quiz answer yourself. the questions right. uh, to quiz yourself. To do the retrieval mm -hmm. practice. Yeah. One of the things I've been using in my class is McGraw-Hill's um, smart book, but students have the option of either using a traditional ebook version of it, which is just linear, or the smart book option, which does exactly this. There's a section they read, and then they're quizzed on it, and then if they do well, they can move on. If not, uh, it will tell them to go back and re-examine the material and then try it again with some different questions. Um, what I'm finding is that the, the stronger students, the students who are doing better, do that, but the students who are struggling find that very frustrating and they give up. And it's hard to develop a mindset mm -hmm. to convince them that that practice is really useful. And instead of focusing on the things that's easiest, perhaps mm -hmm. they need to focus more. Mm -hmm. What tactics could you use Learning to help is hard convince work. them? Yeah. <laughs> and we have to convince them of that because when people come in with a fixed mindset, it's hard for them to deal with struggle. Mm -hmm. So you asked what tactics do we use to get them to understand that they have to practice the hard stuff instead of going through the stuff that comes easier to them? I'm still working on figuring out the best way to do that with students. But one thing that I think is helpful is a lot of students might have had the experience of playing a musical instrument or, you know, perhaps they took dance lessons and, and participated in, in dance recitals. Or sports. And, or sports, yes. Um, so, and so if they had a good coach or, or teacher along the way, hopefully that person was explaining to them, look, when you're playing this piece of music, we don't just start at the beginning and run through to the end every time. We work on sections at a time, and it's not the section that we play really well that we need to stop and work on. It's the part that we're struggling on. And so sometimes when we're practicing it to try and get it better, we don't try to go full speed. We, we slow it down, break it up, into steps and then gradually build up the speed and and work up to our performance level. And if we can relate it back to something like that, that they've experienced, it may help them, um, you know, apply it to a new type of learning. Yeah. We're still looking for additional strategies there. After being sort of coached into some of these processes that we know science tells us work, you know, how are students responding once they actually try? Are they seeing the effects? And then although it's a struggle, they're they're doing it? Or what has your experience been? We've gotten some good feedback, actually. We've mentioned before that a lot of the students that we're working with are primed for some change. They're ready to try some new strategies because the strategies they've been using have not led to success here in the college setting. 
So one thing that we do in our academic success course, in addition to introducing the strategies with videos, we give the students some opportunities to try those strategies out in the classroom on the day that we introduce it. But we also make it homework for a whole week. They have to choose a strategy they want to try out. So we give them a handout, actually. And on the handout, we list some strategies from Make It Stick, the science of successful learning. Uh, we have self-testing or retrieval practice, space practice, interleaved practice. We also list Cornell notes on there as a method of mm -hmm. using retrieval practice. So we have them choose a strategy to try out for the week. They have to write down specifically what they did to make that strategy a reality, write down the result of their actions. And then they also provide a little more detail on what their next steps are going to be. So perhaps they liked that strategy, but they want to tweak it a little bit to make it even more effective for them. Or perhaps they liked that strategy, found it effective for one course, so they're going to start using it in another course. So we find that when we give the students the time to do it by making an assignment, and we don't have a lot of assignments in our class, we try to make everything that we do beneficial for the students to promote their success. So we don't feel like we're overburdening them with work, but we do give them adequate time to, to try this out. And as they're doing the work for our class, they're also accomplishing work they have to do for another class anyway. So when they take the time to try it out, while not being under stress about it, gotten some good feedback. I have some some quotes for some students. We have students write about this in their final reflection that they do for the course. They write about, you know, what worked well for them and kind of what their next steps are going to be as they're working towards academic success. So, for example, when students were trying out interleaving. Uh, we had a couple students mention that when they were using interleave practice or varied practice, they didn't get tired out as fast during their study session because they weren't studying one thing for a long stretch at a time. They weren't getting bored when they would switch between topics. Students also mentioned that it helped them make connections between the things they were learning. For example, I actually have an upper division biology student who came to us because she's considering medical school in the future and she's doing well already, but she knows medical school is going to be a challenge. So she wants to start improving her learning strategies now. Excellent. So she is taking several upper division biology classes and using interleaving helped her see the different connections between her different biology classes that she was taking. She cited higher grades on her midterm exam, but more importantly to her, she said she didn't feel like she had to rush to feel prepared for her exams. You know, in the past, she had relied on cramming and she was initially apprehensive about trying something new because she was used to studying in a certain way and she had been successful up to this point. But when I shared with her that medical students use these strategies to be successful and even showed her some videos on YouTube that were geared towards medical students using the strategies. I think that helped her give strategies a chance. And when she did, she saw increased grades because of it, but she also saw reduced stress because of it, which is going to be important when she goes to medical school. <laughs> yeah, we think so. <laughs> One thing I've been really impressed by, you know, in talking to you since we started with the reading groups is the focus you placed on evidence-based practices, giving students tools that will allow them to be successful in any course rather than just focusing on specific short-term mm -hmm. problems. And have students generally been buying in in general 
we make sure that the students we invite into our class are students who are close to being on academic probation or like see that they need the help so that the dynamic of the classroom is appropriate for everyone. They're more receptive. Yeah. Yeah. And when I have a student add a class late, I'm very careful to remind them this is a class full of students that are on academic probation or close to it and are very interested in being academically successful. And, And I think that helps a lot. Starting the class off with that mindset helps quite a bit, makes it a more open atmosphere. We also do some like ice breaking activities to help warm everyone up, to let them know that it's a safe zone for, for this kind of talk. And that helps quite a bit. That seems to be my best strategy as a start. It also seems like it's a, you know, you're meeting them where they're at, right? right. And that's the whole structure of the course right. is like the assumption of being in this class is that you're at a place where things aren't working, we want to work better. And that mm-hmm. seems like it's the key setup to being successful is because, right. you know, like that's where you're starting. You're not starting with like, well, there's some people who are being really successful and some people who aren't. And, you know, you don't have that wide range, right? Like there's right. a little more focus and sometimes having that more focused group of students can make for maybe mm-hmm. a better a better sell. Because in, in John's example earlier, the really large class, he might talk about them, but maybe about the strategies, but perhaps it's like, group of students who were maybe already going to do fairly well, already had that kind of growth mindset, might adopt it because they're willing to try something new. And that group of students who maybe weren't going to, who weren't willing, who might not be successful, right, might end up mm-hmm. uh, in, in your group of students. But it's nice that there's kind of places that that information is getting to people in different places. I think you said it perfectly. We really do need to meet them where they're at. We admitted them. They're in the class. They're in their standing for a reason. And that's why Allison and I have jobs is to make sure we come to them to help. And it's certainly more efficient than just discarding 20 to 40 percent of our students over the first couple of years, mm-hmm. as was a common practice in colleges and universities mm-hmm. for decades. You know, people are spending a lot to be here and there's a lot of investment in getting people here and encouraging them to be successful. is a good thing. Yeah, we do find that a lot of students may not have had the opportunity to navigate through academic failure before. And certainly everyone has had struggles, but some of the students that we're seeing now may not have been having that many academic struggles while they were in high school. And, you know, some of the students we see, they aren't sure how to to navigate a failure. So that's another role that we and the faculty and staff as a team have to help students see those struggles and failures as a learning and growth opportunity rather than an experience that defines them negatively. Going back to the mindset comment mm-hmm. that um, students with fixed mindsets are not always going to be students who are lower quality students. Mm-hmm, right. One of the problems mm-hmm. is that when students have been successful, but they have this fixed mindset, they believe that it's because they're talented. And the first time they experience failure can often be very disruptive and can lead them to giving up. Yeah. So that growth mindset mm-hmm. is important for all students, even those who have been successful, as well as those who've struggled. Mm-hmm. Those who've struggled regularly often have been forced to adopt a growth mindset because they can see it work. But those students who are able to breeze through middle school and high school without doing much work, when suddenly they're faced with a challenge, often have those sort of troubles. Yeah, I remember having a conversation with a student like that last semester. He had declared a certain major because he had 
been interested in it. And based on his experience with the topic in high school, he thought he was good at that subject. That was his phrase that, you know, I thought I was good at it. And then he got here and took an intro course in the same subject. And he didn't do as well as he had thought. And his comment to me was, well, I thought I was good at, at it, but I guess I'm just not. And, you know, this student de definitely needs some help cultivating a growth mindset. I think it's a, a long process for some students because, you know, their mindsets have been developing since they were young enough to start to understand language based on the types of um, praise they were hearing from their well-meaning parents. And from um, some of their teachers yep, along the way. Yep. Because they've been praised for being good at this or talented mm -hmm. rather than for their effort. Right. So I think it's something that we all need to be conscious of. The the messages we're sending to students, the, the way we're praising them, what we're praising them for. And also, you know, some of the feedback that we give that may not be praised, but might be taken by the students as, as more negative. Um, of course, we have to give um, constructive criticism, but some students... Some students just seem to have some problems in recognizing that. We've all seen people who say they're just not good at math or they just can't write yeah. or they just can't give public mm -hmm. speak. I can't draw or they can't one. draw. Or yeah. they, you know, <laughs> and, and the reason is mostly because they haven't really tried to do those mm -hmm. things and they haven't put in the effort. And reminding students that they can get better at things by doing it is something I think we all need to work on. I think it's interesting that sometimes the, the lack of a growth mindset is actually pretty prevalent in students who maybe have traditionally earned A's and B's. Mm -hmm. And then those are the students who don't yeah. want to take any risks, mm -hmm. right? Which is really what college often is about is taking some risks and like, you know, coming up mm -hmm. with a hypothesis and finding out if you're correct or not. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's a chance that you're not. Mm -hmm. um, and so I certainly see this a lot in my classes too, um, that students, you know, it might be a student who maybe is a traditionally a C student, but man, they really want to try something new, mm -hmm. you know, and, and try to get the most out of this situation. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's a benefit to maybe sharing some of the mindset strategies that maybe mm -hmm. some of the students that we might label as poor students like actually have that could that everyone else in the room could benefit from and taking the time and energy to raise awareness about like, oh, look at that risk. You know, that was a really interesting choice to make. I'd like to see other people make take risks like that. It could really be beneficial in helping to switch that uh, mindset, I think. I think that's a great suggestion, Rebecca. Um, we can't just stop at telling students to put the time in and, and try and you'll see yourself improve. I think we actually need to show them explicit ways that they can do that. So in your graphic design course, you're going to have specific things that they can do to improve their work. Whereas in a writing course, there's going to be specific writing strategies students can use to improve their writing. So not only can the professor take the time to show the strategies that students can use, but also give some time to the other students um, in the class to share the strategies they've used. I really do think that helps students buy in when the strategies are coming from their peers. I did want to make sure that we took a little time uh, while we were chatting today to find out like why you got into the roles that you're in in the first place, because it's in, you know, somewhat of an unusual position. And I'm just well, curious. a new position. Well, I think yeah, it's becoming I mean, much more yeah. unusual. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like, how did you how did you end up 
where you're at? So I went to school and studied finance, actually, close to John over here. And um, I started working for the school that I was going to. And it helped pay tuition. So that was a fantastic benefit. And um, eventually I started academic advising. So I've always been an academic advisor of some sort. And um, so advising was really important to me, not so much financial advising. I found that that was a little more risky depending on the market and just tended to um, gravitate towards advising students. So I really enjoy that aspect. Um, My previous job here at SUNY Oswego was a transfer success advisor where I helped students transfer from community college to a four-year institution. And there definitely is a gap there that's very similar to what we experience with our first-year students. So I see that too. And this just was like a, a very gradual, happy next step for me. I've had an interesting pathway to get to this role. How much detail would you like? <laughs> Please give the whole story out. <laughs> okay, well, I have always been fascinated by how the brain learns and remembers. And when I was much younger, I thought I wanted to be a brain surgeon. And everyone that I went to school with thought I was going to become a brain surgeon. And my parents thought I was going to become a brain surgeon. But through some um, different experiences that I had, some before college and and some during college, I learned that physical surgery was not going to be the best way for me to help people personally. But I was still very interested in how the brain works. Um, So I began to think about other ways that I could still learn all I could about how how the brain functions and learns and remembers and help people improve their capacity for learning. Um, so as an undergraduate, I took a lot of neuroscience courses in addition to my psychology major, got my master's in education here at Oswego and taught for several years. But I was really missing the one-on-one interaction with students. I found that I wasn't really getting the time to have individual coaching sessions with with students on how to improve and how they could learn better. I had chunks of it here and there, but I wanted to be able to focus more time on that. So uh, when this opportunity became available, it just seemed like a really good fit for me. So I'm glad I made the the change. So in your roles that you're currently in, what do you, you know, you've done so much already, but what are you going to do next? Well, um, as we alluded to previously, um, we're still, you know, looking for effective strategies to help students develop more of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And we know that the research is still taking shape in that area. And I know there are some things out there that are already being discussed, you know, a different conferences on student success and also lists, listservs that, that we subscribe to, um, first year and transitional type listservs. Unfortunately, we don't always have the time to digest all of that as it's, as it's coming in because we do have so many things going on, but that's one of our priorities, you know, on one of our slow times (laughs) uh, to investigate some more strategies to help develop that growth mindset with students. Sounds like a fantastic plan. I, mean, I think, it, you know, taking the time to do that is going to be really helpful. And I think we all probably wish we had a little more time mm-hmm. to dig into the research mm-hmm. on that topic. Mm-hmm. Well, we really appreciate both of you joining us today and taking the time to chat with us and sharing what you've been up to. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.